for our last session of the day. Turn to Matthew 16, if you will. What I'm going to share, really Matt and Jesse and Brian and Reed had heard way back in 2020. Um, some of the things I'm going to teach tonight. I'm going to, I've tweaked it a bit. <laughs> but I think, I don't think you'll find it redundant. As a matter of fact, because you've been studying together for three and a half years, I think it'll be hopefully more, even more profound for you. Uh, as you think through it, but it's so crucial, so critical that we wrap our mind around things uh, that we're going to talk about. Because this session, we're going to talk about the narrow gate and true churches. This is where all this has been leading. You know, if if, the, if conversion is a narrow gate, if there's a connection to assurance, if there's a connection to the way we do evangelism. Then, when people are converted, they're baptized and added to the church. And if men are going to be church planters who are sent out. They've got to know what a church is, right? So, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Let me emphasize in the original Greek, there's four uses of the word the. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. Mm. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray again for the merit, through the merits of Jesus Christ that your spirit would be poured out upon us to give us ears to hear. And show us what a church is, Lord. We live in days when thinking about this is fuzzy, when it's uh, defined by the lowest common denominator on the mission field. Help us, O Lord, to think through these things with great wisdom and discernment. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've done the deep dive on the Great Commission. The Great Commission requires us to send out elder-qualified men to do the work of evangelism, to baptize converts, to plant local churches that are self-governing, self-sustaining, self-propagating. What kind of church needs to be planted? The church you plant, the church you attend, the church you are willing to join has everything to do with what gospel you believe. Right? If you believe in easy believism and cheap grace then you'll go into a decisionistic church that doesn't ever do any discipline or have any, have any accountability structure of any kind, which is 90% of the churches out there, at least, right? Because of the gospel they believe. As opposed to the biblical gospel, if we embrace the biblical gospel that's a narrow gate, what's that going to make church membership look like? What's it going to make the ordinances look like? What's it going to make the preaching of the gospel look like? Let me remind you of a quote from Jeff Johnson's book. I quoted it way back in session 15. His book, The Church, Why Bother? He says this, A church's view of salvation has a vital impact on its practices. 
Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, should never be separated in practice. What we believe about God, salvation, and man will consequently influence the way we do church. A high view of God and a low view of man, or a high view of man and a low view of God, will determine if a church is God-centered or man-centered. In the end, the church's view of God, man, and salvation will determine whom the church is seeking to please. Forgive me for stating the obvious, but men who are going to pastor churches or plant churches must know what a church is. Cross-cultural missionary must recognize that preaching, teaching, and church planting are at the very center of his calling. <coughs> Let me say that again. I know you've heard it over and over again, but I want to make sure it gets through. A cross-cultural missionary must recognize that preaching, teaching, and church planting are at the very center of his calling. That is how you obey the Great Commission. You can't obey the Great Commission without it. Remember what we saw? Make disciples. That requires preaching the gospel, right? Baptize them. That's the sacrament of baptism. And then what do you do next? You teach. So you have an ordinance sandwiched in between all this Bible teaching that's going on, right? This is important because in your reading, some of you have already read ahead. Neil read this and I got all kinds of texts back and forth because he was having a coronary. And uh, the same experience I had when I read the book. It's Matt Rhodes' No Shortcut to Success, as well as the book Missions by the Book, Chad Vegas and Alex Cockman. And both you're going to be introduced to the mission strategy that is the premier mission strategy on the field right now. It's known as disciple-making movements. It began as what were called church planting movements, kind of morphed into disciple-making movements. And again, we love to alliterate things, so it's DMN. Training for, t for trainers, which is called T4T, or any three. These are all basically variations of the same theme. They're different, different variations of the same idea. Church planting movements began with a guy named David Garrison. This is the book. It's called Church Planting Movements. Uh, he's the father of church planting movements, from which disciple-making movements ultimately arose. David Garrison developed CPM through the Southern Baptist International Mission Board, IMB. There's, there's alliteration again. Where he served as IMB's Associate Vice President for Global Strategy. IMB, if you don't know, is the largest missionary sending agency in history and in the world. And therefore, what is advocated by IMB gets advocated by all the other associations of churches, all the other mission societies, and that kind of thing. What he started off as, as church planting movements became later what are known as disciple-making movements. This is Contagious Disciple-Making by David Watson and Paul Watson, a father and son team. This is apparently the premier book on the subject of, of uh, disciple-making movements. The basic gist of what they say is Jesus never commanded us to plant churches. He just commanded us to make disciples. Okay? So I'm going to give you just sort of a survey of what disciple-making movements are. Matt Rhodes is going to talk to you about them in his book. He quotes these very sources I've just showed you. If your experience is like mine and like Neil's, when I read it, I kept on having to do double takes. I kept reading, no, he did not just say what he just said. I was like, do you read your Bible with a blindfold on? How can you read your Bible this way? 
But let me tell you what it basically says. One of these authors in some of these books claims that the church has been doing missions wrong for the past 1,600 years. That should be your first sign that something's amiss. That's, if anyone's saying something's novel, something new, and that's what we're recovering, you know, the first century methodology, you know something's up, right? Um, the church has been wrong for that long, really. And you're, but you're right. We don't need to listen to the church. Let's listen to you. Okay, let me quote to you from Contagious Disciple Making. What you first do is you find a person of peace when you enter into a new culture that you're trying to win. Here's a quote from page 127. The person of peace teaching is an entry strategy to new communities. In the Great Commission, Jesus commands us to go. What do we do when we get to where we're going? We find the person of peace. This is radically different from traditional disciple-making methods. The word radical is another word that should tip you off. Uh, In the person of peace strategy, the disciple-maker has one job. Find the person of peace. This person may be from any walk of life, but he or she will welcome you, listen to your message, help you with your livelihood, and allow you to stay in his or her home and influence his or her family and the community for the sake of the gospel. The disciple-maker does not do any of the traditional things required by traditional disciple-making. He does not preach or teach. He does not hand out tracts or sell books or give away Bibles. He does not do mass rallies or healing services. I agree with that last part. (laughs) What do you do when you find the person of peace? Pages 128 to 129. Quote, When the person of peace reveals him or herself, the disciple maker shifts the focus to the family of peace. The disciple maker starts a discovery group. Uh, You can put a TM beside that. Uh, To help the family discover on their own who God is and how they must relate to him. Did you hear that? Discover on their own. The disciple maker teaches them how to study the word of God, but does not lead the Bible studies or do any of the preaching and teaching. The focus is on the family learning, the family learning directly from God through his word. The disciple maker guides the direction of the study, but does not conduct the study except to model the process a few times in the beginning. It keeps getting worse. Page 146. Did you know that lost people can evangelize? Well, they can if you keep it simple enough. Evangelism at its core is sharing the gospel with someone else. When working with lost people, they don't know the whole gospel. That is totally okay. We just want them to share the story they've just heard with someone who hasn't, who hasn't in the group. One more quote. What do you do to help your person of peace grow into a leader? Quote, when working with lost people, we have to avoid falling into the role of explaining scripture. If we do, we become the authority rather than allowing the scripture to be the authority. If we are the authority, replication is limited by our leadership capacity and the time we have to teach every group. Consequently, shifting from scripture being the authority to the teacher being the authority will keep groups from replicating as they should. It's a hard shift to make. We love teaching. It it makes us feel good. We know the answers and want to share that knowledge with others. But if we want to disciple people who look to Scripture and the Holy Spirit for answers to the questions, we can't be the answer people. We have to help them discover what God says to them in His Word. This new and radical method is how you obey the Great Commission and you don't teach or preach, which is what the Great Commission requires you to do. This person, this person of peace, becomes the pastor of that church. And after two or three weeks, you leave behind a church and a reached people group. Millions have been reached this way. Thousands of churches 
are out there. Can't help but think about the Ethiopian eunuch. He's in a chariot and he's reading out loud from Isaiah 53. Philip overtakes him and says, Do you understand what you're reading? You remember what his response was? How can I? Unless someone guides me. And the Bible says, Philip opened his mouth and began at the scripture and preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus to him authoritatively. The claim that tens of thousands of unreached people are being reached through this method, and this method is on almost every major missions group there is. Chad Vegas talked about this in his class that I took from him. He said, start naming missions organizations. People just started rattling them off one after another. You'd recognize them all. Yep, disciple-making movement. Yep, disciple-making movement. Disciple-making movement. Yep, they advocate it too. It's everywhere. This is what's being said is obeying the Great Commission. Well, what is the centerpiece of Great Commission obedience? Preach the gospel authoritatively. Teach. When Paul spoke to Timothy, wrote to Timothy, who was on the mission field, by the way, Ephesus, right? He's, pre- he's, he's ministering in a church planted by Paul. Did he tell him, be a nice, authorita- non-authoritative life coach for the church at Ephesus? Or did he say, there are some people teaching other doctrine. You command them in the name of God to stop it. And you take the things I've committed to you and you find the men who are faithful in your church and you teach that body of doctrine to those men so that they will teach others the same body of doctrine. Right? Um, no, this is what the scriptures command. Disciple making movements are the new kid on the block and everybody's into the methodology. But you know there's a problem. That's the problem with missions. Missions is where so much pragmatism takes place. Chad Vegas said, the mission field is the tip of the spear for heresy in the church. Because here's the thing, they adopt a method that's wrong, but you can't criticize them because they're missionaries. Look at what they're doing. We can't criticize that. In fact, let's adopt what they're doing in the church. You heard the revoice movement in the PCA? The idea you can be a homosexual and still be a pastor? Well, you know where it started? The mission field. The elders of Midway Presbyterian, I was having lunch with them, they said this to me. They said, oh, it began on the mission field. I said, of course it did. Because that's where the pragmatism is. Brothers and sisters, listen. Theology affects methodology. God's work must be done God's way or it will not have God's blessing upon it. God's work must be done God's way or it will not have God's blessing upon it. Now certainly God sometimes uses crooked sticks to point to the straight and narrow, but that's not what we should deliberately employ, right? Think of Nadab and Abihu, who burned strange fire before the Lord. They had a great, nifty, pragmatic way of starting off their priesthood, and God killed them for it. Or think of the, uh, the man who touched the Ark of the Covenant when it fell over because David used a man-made methodology, put him on a new ox cart to take the, cart, the Ark. How was he supposed to transport the Ark? By the priests. He came up with a man-made methodology and someone died for it. Uzzah was killed and struck dead because of that. God's work must be done God's way or it will not have God's blessing upon it. Pure and simple. So if you define church by the lowest common denominator, okay, I left a Bible in somebody's hand who's going to be a group leader for a group study inside of some cafe somewhere, Okay, maybe that's a good evangelistic method. If, if a Christian is having a Bible study over coffee, that's great. That's not a church. And leaving a novice in charge of the spiritual development of other people 
is, is, is contrary to the scriptures. The Bible says that you will do them positive harm with that. So again, this is not theory. This is something very, very important. So as we think through this, uh, we need to think about what a church is biblically. And the best way to do that, in my opinion, is to ask a question. And that question is, what are the keys of the kingdom? Jesus said he was going to give the keys of the kingdom to Peter. Have you ever wondered what those were? Well, we're going to find out tonight. And then, let's talk about administering the keys of the kingdom. So what are the keys of the kingdom? Back to Matthew 16. All throughout our Lord's earthly ministry, by this point, Jesus' apostles have been with him for two full years. Right? They've seen his miracles. They've heard him preach probably hundreds of times, literally. They've seen his miracles. They've seen him do all kinds of great things. And over and over again, if you notice in the gospel accounts, before they get to this point, there's a question that keeps getting asked by the multitudes and by the apostles. And it's this, what manner of man is this that he teaches with that kind of authority? What kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who can this be that even the demons obey his voice? I think the most astonishing of all, who is this that he can forgive sins? That question's being asked. It's as if the Gospels are looking at you and asking you the question, who is this? And finally, Jesus hears at Caesarea Philippi. It's the northernmost part of, of uh, Israel. And they're, they're on a mountain, Mount Hermon. And it says, and remember the psalm from the slopes of Mount Hermon? They're right there uh, on Mount Hermon. So many things happen on mountaintops in, 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 in redemptive history. Right? Uh, Eden, the giving of the law, uh, Mount Ararat, the transfiguration on a mountain. Jesus, looking at his men, he says, first of all, who do the crowds say that I am? Oh, some say John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others, a great prophet from of old. Come back. Who do you say I am? In other words, gentlemen, you've seen the evidence. What's the verdict? And, Jesus, and Peter, of course, gives that wonderful that wonderful statement, you are the Messiah, the Son of the God, the Living One. He's being very specific. When he uses that word, the, he's saying there isn't anybody else. You're the only Messiah there is. You're the only mediator between God and man. You're the only Son of God. There is no one else but you. Very specific. And you remember what he says. He blesses him. And he says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father, open your eyes to see this. And then he says this, on this rock I will build my church. I won't go into all of what that means except to say this. The scriptures tell us as we compare scripture with scripture, the rock is the church is built on Jesus Christ and his apostles. That's the express statement of scripture. Not the apostles in their humanity. Not their character. That would be shifting sand, wouldn't it? We heard about Peter this morning in preaching. Uh, you don't want your church built on Peter, right? Because he's just a man. But their doctrine and their, and their authoritative apostolic traditions, that it's what we call the New Testament, right? It's been inscripturated for all time in the, in, the, in the New Testament. And what is their doctrine all about? Who Jesus is and what he came to do. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it, the church is built upon the foundation of Christ and his apostles. And Jesus says, I'm, I will build my church. Who's going to build it? He is. I will build my church. Remind you of the vision that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has back in Daniel chapter 2. All these kingdoms of men that are represented by the four-layered statue. Remember that? And then this big meteor comes from heaven, not made with hands, and it crashes it, it hits it, and what's it happen? It becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. As the church expands, the empire of God expands on earth. 
So I'm going to build my church, and that's how the kingdom is going to advance. And notice something. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When you think about that, we usually think of the the gates of hell as if they're advancing against us offensively. But gates are not an offensive weapon. They're a defensive weapon to keep somebody out. Just keep out the invader. So when we send people onto the mission field to unreached people groups, we're sending them to storm the gates of hell. And the gates of hell, all the resistance that Satan has built up, all the false arguments to destroy the gospel, I'm going to tear them down. My kingdom is going to advance. It's going to fill the whole earth until it becomes a mountain where every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation are singing my praises because they know me. Um, The language of verse 19 is inseparably connected to the expansion of Christ's kingdom on earth. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind, by the way, I, I deliberately use the, the, the more proper language here. It's actually a past tense, a perfect tense verb. Um, it says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. It's not that you're doing something on earth and heaven responds by doing the same. It's that what you're doing on earth by binding and loosing, heaven has already ordained it. And so it's being made manifest on earth because God's decree has already said, this person's bound, this person is loosed. But he says, I'll give you the keys of heaven that you can bind and loose. And by the way, the pronoun you here is you singular. He's speaking to Peter. You are the first to confess I am the Christ. Therefore, you're the first to get to use the keys of the kingdom. Now, we're going to see in just a moment that he is the first apostle to use the keys. And we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. But it doesn't mean... Peter alone had the keys. It also does not mean that when you get to heaven, Peter's going to be at the gate of heaven with keys waiting to let you in. Popular to modern mythology, right? No. What are keys? I've got three decorative keys here that I stole off of my wife's uh, uh, kitchen wall. I I didn't tell her. I'll, I'll put them back before the night's over. So where are the keys of the kingdom? They're hanging up on my kitchen wall. No. All right, I've got three keys. What's a key do? And locks things. It also does something else. What else does it do? Locks. Locks them. Your key can unlock your door and let a friend in. Key can also shut the door and lock it so that an enemy or a thief or a murderer can't come in. It lets in and it keeps out. It binds and it loosens. That's what keys do. So the question is, these are the keys of the kingdom. They have something... These aren't, literally. But, <laughs> but whatever the keys of the kingdom are, they have something to do with admitting sinners into the narrow gate and shutting out other sinners from entering into the narrow gate. It unlocks it for one. It locks it up for another. So we've got to think through, what is that? You're beginning to start thinking, hmm, what could these be? Well, let's look at some more scriptures. Compare scripture to scripture, and we'll find out what they are. Luke 11, verse 52. Jesus is rebuking uh, his enemies. He says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You hear that? The key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. Jesus is rebuking the lawyers. The lawyers were not uh, ambulance-chasing attorneys. These were experts in the law of Moses. They knew the ins and outs of the law of Moses, supposedly. The reality was they were always just looking for loopholes in the law of Moses. That was what they were doing. But Jesus says, you understood the gospel. You had the key of knowledge in your own hand. You knew who I am. And yet you didn't use that key. 
to enter in to the kingdom. And in fact, you withheld it from the masses. You kept them from going in. So it kind of hints that the key is the gospel. The message of the gospel, right? Reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 15 to 16. He was rebuking the Judeans. Uh, Judeans and he said, They killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, listen to this, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, withholding the key from them by keeping us from speaking the gospel. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Another text, John 20, verses 19 to 23. This is Jesus, uh, has risen from the dead. This is his appearance to his apostles. On the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Great commission. Right, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The language of forgiving and retaining sin sounds a lot like binding and loosing, doesn't it? Sounds like keys to the kingdom. I put them in your hand. If you forgive any, they're forgiven. If you retain any, they're retained. This is not priestly absolution that he's giving here. The word you here is plural. So the keys that were given to Peter have also been given to all the apostles. right? Um, but the authority here is the authority to forgive sin or to retain sin. So whatever the keys are, it has something to do with being forgiven or not being forgiven. To let one in, a sinner in who's forgiven, to keep one out who's not. So they have to do something, something to do with repentant sinners, don't they? And the gospel message through which they repent. Now turn to Matthew 18. The context of Matthew 18 is dealing with what? Do you remember? Church discipline. Church discipline. You know what's going on here. And I'm going to be, God willing, teaching on restorative church discipline after I finish teaching on the confession on Wednesday nights. So we'll take four or five Wednesday nights to learn together about what is involved in church discipline. As we approach this, you ever thought about this fact that there are three presuppositions that underlie Jesus' commandments here? The first one is this. True Christians are not perfect. They sin. Second presupposition is that true Christians can sometimes be stubborn in their sin. That's why you go once and you take two or three brothers and they still don't listen. You tell them the church and the church tells them to repent and they're given time to repent. They don't repent. You, you go through this entire process. There's a long time has been given to them with ever-increasing levels of accountability. And some people are finally brought to repentance because true Christians can be stubborn in their sin. Anybody feel that in their heart? <laughs> I'm stubborn in my sin. We all are, right? The third thing, though, is that while true Christians are not perfect, at the end of the day, they are repentant because Jesus prays for them and they're renewed to repentance. And if they are not, if every single avenue has been followed and they still refuse to listen, you have no other choice but by the command of Christ to put them out of the church and to call them an unbeliever because they're not repentant. So you could say that the steps can be summarized like this. It's, it's confronting a sinning brother and then it's confronting a stubborn brother. 
and then it's removing a false brother. That's what's going on here. But notice the language, verses 17 to 18. If he refuses to hear them, that is the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. Now, notice something. There's only three times that Jesus uses the word church in all of the gospel accounts. Did you know that? And they're they're all in Matthew. Matthew 16, I will build my church. Does he mean, is he talking there about the local church? No, because are there true churches that sometimes have to close their doors? Yes. There are churches that fail, right? Local churches. But does the church, the universal church, continue? Of course it does. Can it ever be vanquished? Can it ever fail? No, because Christ's promise. But in Matthew 18, he uses the word church twice. Does he mean, if somebody's in sin, let's broadcast it on the, on the World Wide Web so that the universal church hears about it? Or does he mean, tell it to the local church of which they're a member? It's the visible church. It's the local church. So you have Jesus himself using universal, invisible, and visible church uh, in both of his teachings. All right, so this is, if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. You recognize that language. It's forgiveness or retaining sin. It's binding. It's loosing. The keys of the kingdom tells us something. Were the keys of the kingdom given only to Peter? No. They were given to all the apostles. But in Matthew 18, where do we find the keys now? The local church. The local church. Local churches that are built upon apostolic doctrine. Not false churches that deny it. Right? But where there's true apostolic doctrine, there's the keys of the kingdom. So, you're beginning to see where this is going. How Jesus is speaking. So, let's try to answer our question. What are the keys of the kingdom? Well, you guys read the Heidelberg Catechism. Right? It's, it tells you right there and they nail it. I remember when I first saw this years ago, it, it rocked my world. I was like, dude, whoa, <laughs> this is incredible. Let me read it to you. Question 83. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Answer. The preaching of the holy gospel and church discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. Hey, that's just what the Bible said. You see, though, they're saying there's two keys. Gospel preaching, church discipline. Question 84, how is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the holy gospel? Answer thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, what it is declared and testified to all unbelievers, and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God in eternal condemnation, so long as they are unconverted, according to which the testament of the gospel, God will judge them both in this life and the life that is to come. Here's the gospel. If you repent, the, key, the, the, the door is open to you. If you do not repent, the door is shut. Right? Question 85. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and open by Christian discipline? Answer, thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not, after having been brotherly admonished, uh, often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church, and if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden use of the sacraments. Barred from the Lord's Supper, right? Right? 
whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment are again received as members of Christ and his church. So according to the Heidelberg Catechism, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, is the primary key of the kingdom. There's a second key connected to the gospel called discipline, church discipline. It opens and shuts. There's a third key, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. If we apply this, though, to the fact that Jesus said to Peter that in a unique way, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, let's ask ourselves, how did Peter use the key of preaching the gospel and of church discipline? When the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, who was the principal speaker? Peter. And the key was opened, and 3,000 souls entered in. And then, years later, God chose to open, after Pentecost, the kingdom of God to the entire Gentile world. And a man named Cornelius was praying to God, and an angel appeared to him, and went over there, and who was called for staying with Simon, a tanner, in Joppa? It was Peter. So who first gave, opened the door, the key, turned the key and opened the door for the Gentiles, as it were, through his preaching? It was Peter. Peter was conscious of the fact, because in Acts 15, 7, at the Jerusalem Council, several years later, he said this, quote, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he was given the privilege, because he was the first to confess Christ, to be the first to use that gospel key among the Jews, and then to use that gospel key among the Gentiles. Now, after he opens that door, as it were, Paul takes over and becomes the primary apostle to the Gentiles. But who got to be the first one? Peter. Okay, so that's the key of preaching the gospel. What about the key of church discipline? What is the first recorded instance of church discipline we have in the New Testament? Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. And who was there? Peter. Peter. You remember the story? And Ananias and Sapphira were Christians, professing Christians, who lied about how much they had given to the church. It wasn't the problem that they gave less to the church. The problem was they lied about it. They made them think that this was the entire amount that we got from ourselves land. Because they wanted to look good like you know, Barnabas, who had sold a piece of land and given money. So Peter rebukes, the Lord shows Peter what's gone on. You haven't lied to men. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. Ananias drops dead. Young men go and have a quick funeral. And bury him. Three hours later, his wife comes around. Peter, I need to see you. <laughs> Doesn't know his wife, the, the, her husband is dead. Did you sell the land for such and such amount? Yes, that's the amount. How's you, you've conspired with your husband to sin against God. The men who buried your husband, their feet are outside the door, and they're going to bury you now. She drops dead. Do you remember what the Bible says happened after this? Acts 5.11, So great fear came upon all the church, and upon all who heard these things, the church examined themselves. They didn't say, yeah, I never liked Ananias and Sapphira anyway. Thank you, God, I'm not like them. It made them sober. The only difference between Ananias and Sapphira and me is they got caught. It made them look at their own heart and pursue holiness and move them to fresh repentance, which is what the exercise of discipline should do in all of us. Sober us up. Be serious before the, the Lord. But then, in Acts 5, 13-14, have you noticed this before? Listen to it carefully. Think about it in terms of the keys of the kingdom. Yet none of the rest dared join them. 
But the people esteemed them highly. The world respected the church. They're serious over there. But I also know I'm not a part of it. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of men and women. In other words, the same key that shut out the world and kept the church pure was a means of conversion. Other people said, hey, they're serious. That's the real deal. I want that. So it opened it for others. Do you see gospel preaching, restorative discipline being used as keys of the kingdom? To open to those who are repentant, shut out those who are not. Um, Interesting enough, in centuries past, associations of Baptist churches would publish quarterly reports that took a total of all the churches and would say, have these categories that they put out. They wouldn't say which church had what, but all the churches would send in reports of how many people were added, how many people professed faith? How many were baptized? How many died? How many left and went to another church? You know, that kind of stuff. They also had a column for how many did we excommunicate? And they had a column for how many were restored. And you see these numbers. I mean, you can get books that have them published and you're like, you know, 28 people excommunicated in the last quarter in all of our churches, that kind of thing. And then you'd see occasionally one restored. Things like that. Beginning of the 20th century... The Baptists were still publishing things. They were not growing. They weren't seeing people converted. But when they were turning in their reports, there was a big goose egg when it came to excommunications. You know what they concluded? We need to be more vigilant to excommunicate people who are not living worthy of the name, and then we'll see the church growth again. Hmm. Doesn't that sound counterintuitive? But God's blessing isn't on us because we're not being serious about walking with the Lord. And if we'll do some pruning, then the fruit bearing will come. Now, isn't that something? That's not how we would think today, but that's how they thought then. So, the catechism is spot on when it asserts that the preaching of the gospel and the exercise of church discipline are two keys of the kingdom. But I would suggest there's a third. You need to follow me carefully in what I say here. I believe the third key is the ordinance, baptism in the Lord's Supper. Okay, because did you notice in question 85 of the Heidelberg Catechism, if they despise their admonition, they are forbidden use of the sacraments. There's a connection between baptism and the Lord's Supper and church discipline. In other words, when someone's first converted because they believe in the gospel, they've, they've responded, as it were, to the key of the gospel. It's unlocked the, the, the kingdom for them. What's their first act of obedience? be baptized. And when they're baptized, what happens? They're added to the church, right? But what if someone applies for baptism to the church and we sit down and we interview them and they don't understand the gospel, they can't articulate the gospel, and it's evident that they don't really know the Lord? Should we baptize them? No. And when we say to them, you're not ready to be baptized, what are we doing? We're saying you're outside the kingdom thus far right now. When someone is placed under the formal discipline of the church, they have their privileges of membership temporarily removed. They are banned from taking the Lord's Supper. And if they still refuse to listen, they are put out of the church. They're excommunicated. Does anyone know what the word excommunicate means? Barred from communion. Barred from communion. Excommune. No more communion. They should not take the Lord's Supper in another church until they are made right with the first church. Because they're excommunicated. And the other churches should recognize the authority of their sister church. Right? But in other words, 
Do you see there's a connection between baptism, the Lord's Supper, and discipline and gospel preaching? My point is, there's a connection, and I believe they constitute the third key of the kingdom. Let me clarify, though, what I mean by that and what I don't mean. I do not mean that baptism and the Lord's Supper regenerate you. They are not converting ordinances. They are sanctifying ordinances for the believer, but they don't convert you. What is the only converting ordinance God has given to us? The gospel. The preaching of the gospel. That is the only converting ordinance there is. But baptism and the Lord's Supper are gospel ordinances. They're connected to it. So, for example, we who have children who are not yet converted, I believe it's very, very important that when the Lord's Supper is taken, they watch those elements pass by them. Not because we're cruel, not because we're mean, but because it's it's conveying something to them. I'm not yet a part of the church. I'm not yet here. It's evangelistic, isn't it? It's a part and part of evangelism. When they watch something being baptized, like Carl and Lena being baptized a few months back, it's a testimony to them. Okay, why are they being baptized? What's that mean, Dad? Explain to me. Why are they being dunked in water? What's that all about? Well, it's because they've come to know Christ. And it's their initiation right into the church, right? So it's evangelistic in that way. So I would submit then, the three keys of the kingdom are the preaching of the gospel, the exercise of restorative church discipline, and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, tie it all together. You also read the Belgic Confession, right? Belgic Confession, Article 29, is called the marks of the church and wherein she differs from the false church. Let me read the first two paragraphs to you. We believe that we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the word of God which is the true church, since all sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name of the church. But we speak not here of hypocrites who are mixed in the church with the good, yet are not of the church, though externally in it. In other words, they're not really members of the invisible church, but they're members of the visible church. But we say that the body and communion of the true church must be distinguished from all sects who call themselves the church. The marks by which the true church is known are these, and they give three. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in in the punishing of sin. Do you hear what they just said? What are the three marks of the church? A church has the keys of the kingdom. Gospel preaching, biblical administration of the ordinances, exercise of church discipline. If they're lacking any one of those three, are they a church? No. Uh, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereunto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. These three marks, they have, they must be a church because they've got the keys. Do you see? Now, how does that translate into disciple-making movements? (laughs) How does that translate into obeying the Great Commission? And what does it mean for the people who are planting churches? So, let's move on then to administrating the keys of the kingdom. I want to give you five basic uh, applications from the things we said. Now, now I'm telling you, is this rocking your world or what? Is this not, you see what it's saying here? And how this helps us clarify what a church is. First of all, baptism and the Lord's Supper are gospel ordinances. There's an inseparable connection between preaching, restorative discipline, administrative of the or- administration of the ordinances. These three keys are on the same key ring. Let's put it that way. Okay? And, then, and they're all church ordinances. We get that? Right? So, how many 
churches in our land do you think practice discipline? None. Oh, there's some. Well, a few. 90, 95% don't. I mean, is that a fair assessment from what you've seen? How many missionaries plant churches that have this in their head? That this should be a normal practice. I remember first time we started praying for Reformed Baptist missionaries, and I was reading prayer requests about pray for us. It wasn't praying because we had these conversions. Pray for us, we're having to excommunicate a man this Sunday. And it's like, hey, there's the real deal right there. There's something there that's more than just, let's get people decision up for Jesus. Right? Um, now, here's the thing let's say that our easy believism churches kept on preaching their decisionistic message. But then these pastors began to say, hey, wait a minute, Matthew 18 is in the Bible, and I have to obey this. And they started putting that into practice. And people are beginning to be excommunicated, and they're leaving the church because you're so judgmental and mean and harsh and yada, yada, yada. What would eventually happen to that man's preaching? His preaching would have to change. He would realize that the message I'm giving with administering discipline and the message I'm giving from the pulpit are very different. And I need to re-examine the gospel I'm preaching to see if it lines up with this. And wait a minute, why, why do we administer the Lord's Supper exactly why we do? And why do we admit people into membership the way we do? We're going to have to change some things. And we're going to be a smaller church. As one man who said, he took, over a Reform, or he took over a Southern Baptist church in Texas and it had 200 people when he came there. He says, and I introduced the confession and grew it down to 50. <laughs> because suddenly everybody left, Right? Uh, but in other words, what I'm getting at is the proper use of one key influences the use of the other keys because they're gospel ordinances. So when a pastor, I've touched on this before, when a pastor of Armenian persuasion is preaching, of course he's going to preach a general atonement. Repent and believe because Jesus died for you. But then if he fences the table, the table is a visible proclamation of Christ crucified. And if he fences the table and says, some of you should not take of this, what's he just done? He's preached a limited atonement. He doesn't even, he's not even sure, he's, he's not even aware he's done it, but he's just done it. See, and, and again, if he starts you know, processing that and realizing, he's, wait a minute, I need to go back and re-examine what it is I'm saying from the pulpit again. Um, when someone is baptized as a new professing Christian, before we baptize them, we need to examine them to make sure they have a credible profession of faith before we baptize them. And that they have a solemn obligation to walk worthy of the name by which they are called. And they must be told this before they submit themselves to baptism. Again, the way we do baptism in church membership is affected by the way we understand the keys of the kingdom. Right? If the, narrow, if the way into life is narrow, what's the way into church? If we want to regenerate church membership. So the gospel affects these things. Um, I will tell you, I've said this story before. Again, the sacraments are not converting or regenerating sacraments. But my oldest son, Sam, he was converted through the gospel. But you know what first made him aware of his need? We started taking the Lord's Supper when we started our church, and he asked me, Dad, can I take the Lord's Supper? No, son, why not? Well, because you don't know the Lord yet. Okay. Next, next month passed by. Hey, Ken, can I take the Lord's Supper today? No, son, why because. So we go over this ground again. Looking back, that was when he first became aware and conscious. And he heard the gospel. Two or three years went by and we had our first baptismal service. It was glorious. The Spirit of God fell. We baptized in a lake on Red Top Mountain. 
And and it, I'm not kidding. Had you been there, mom was there. It was like you could reach out and touch the Holy Spirit. Preached evangelistically before we went down, went down into the lake, baptized several people. We had four professions of faith in addition to the people we baptized that day. Sam was one of them. Eight years old, he came up to me. All the kids were running and playing, of course, after, after uh, service. He was sitting there and says, Mom, I need to talk to Dad. I couldn't get to him because I'm counseling other people who are saying they want to be saved. Finally get to him. He says, Dad, I need to be saved. And I said, okay. He would said that to me before. Son, why do you need to be saved? Because I have broken God's law. And I said, all I can do, son, is tell you that you need to fly to Christ for mercy and cry out to him to have mercy on your soul. And he cries out and starts praying right there. And we're not against sinners' prayers, <laughs> okay? We're against formulas. That's what we're against. But he starts enumerating the law. Lord, I have dishonored my parents. I have not worshipped you. I've worshipped other things. I mean, just goes through this thing. Please, Jesus, have mercy upon my soul. We saw a change. I had the privilege of baptizing him the next summer on the 29th anniversary of my own baptism, by the way. Um, didn't plan that. It just happened. But... But I asked him later, son, you had heard the gospel many times. We'd had many gospel conversations in the home. What was different that day? You know what he said? I saw those people being baptized, and I was so happy for them that they were in the kingdom. And I was so sad for myself that I wasn't. So these gospel ordinances were kind of bookends to help him realize my need for Christ. But then it was the gospel itself that brought him in. So again, they're evangelistic, even though they're not converting ordinances. Does that make sense? Okay. Secondly, baptism and the Lord's Supper are local church ordinances. Local church ordinances. Jesus did not say, I will build my Bible college and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say, I will build my parachurch missionary society and the gospel will advance. Now, again, I'm not against seminaries. I'm not against Bible college. I really am not against parachurch organizations. I'm not. As long as they understand they're not the church. Don't get to substitute the church. Jesus didn't say, I'll give the keys of the kingdom to the seminary. I give the keys of the kingdom to the church, right? To the apostles first, and by extension, churches built upon apostolic doctrine. So, if you sever the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper from the authority of the local church, you will do violence to the sacraments. When new converts were baptized in the book of Acts, they were added to what? the church because they were not only baptized in the triune name of God they were baptized into one body and so in our church if we were interviewing someone to be a baptismal candidate and we go they've got a sound grasp of the gospel okay let's talk about baptism that baptismal interview turns into a membership interview let's talk about you becoming a member of the church once you're baptized and if the person says to us, well, I want to be baptized, but I don't want to be added to the church, then our counsel to them would be, then you're not ready to be baptized. Because you can't be identified with the triune God and not be identified with the church he's established on earth. And until you are, you can't do that, right? Acts 2.42, we've already referred to on numerous occasions, but listen to it again. These, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. In the context, who is they? The church, but who's they in the context? The ones who were baptized. The ones who were baptized, who before they were baptized had believed. believed. So they're the ones who respond in conversion, they're baptized, they're added to the church, and they continue then in what? 
being taught, being preached to, having the whole counsel of God explained. In other words, the apostles are like teaching them to obey all things that whatever Jesus has commanded them to do, something like that. That's what's going on. And they continued in all those things. Breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. Where was the Lord's Supper observed? Inside the context of the church. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 20. When you come together as a church, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. So you gather as a church to take the Lord's Supper, right? It's inside the gathered and assembled church. The observance of the Lord's Supper is connected to the authority of the church. It's not an individual ordinance that someone can serve themselves. It's not an ordinance given to families so that the head of home can serve it after supper to the kids. It is something given to the local church. And that leads to our third point. The authority to administer the ordinances belongs exclusively to the office bearers Christ has given to his church. Luke 20, verses 1 to 8. I know you're familiar with this passage. Listen to it carefully. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, this is Jesus, that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? By what authority are you preaching? By what authority did you cleanse the temple? That's what they're asking. But he answered and said to them, I love how Jesus always answers their question with a question of his own. Well, answer my question and then I'll answer your question. And they never can, right? So he says, I will also ask you one thing and you answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? They look at each other, royal huddle. (laughs) They reason among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? In other words, he's trapped him, right? And then it says, but if we say from men, the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they break their huddle, and they come back to Jesus. Okay, we've talked about it, learned scholars that we are. They answered and said, we do not know where it's from. Truly they have a dizzying intellect. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But do you get what he's saying? John baptized people. Who gave him the authority to do that? God did. If God didn't, then he's a false prophet. There's authority connected to the administration of this ordinance, right? And he was a prophet of God. Um, If baptism and the Lord's Supper are intimately connected to the authority of the local church, it follows that the authority to administer the ordinances is invested in the God-appointed officers of the church. We see this pattern throughout the New Testament. John had disciples under him, and the men he was mentoring for the ministry, they had authority to baptize. The apostles baptized under Jesus' authority. Throughout the book of Acts, it's the officers of the church who are baptizing people. Uh, Philip baptizes, but Philip was one of the seven. He's one of the deacons, right, in Acts chapter 6. The only possible exception I'm aware of is Ananias, who baptized Paul. That is at best an argument from silence, because we're not told that much about Ananias. What we are told about him, in fact, I would suspect he may have been the pastor in that church. What we are told about him is that Jesus himself directly commanded him to baptize Paul. So did he have authorization? Yes, he did. But he had authorization from whom? From Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. Think about the chaos that would ensue if laymen baptized whomever they wanted. Hey, pastor, I baptized my son in the tub last week. He's now a member of our church and we'll be taking the Lord's Supper this morning. Is that a problem? Think about this. Should a woman baptize people? 
the moment you say no, and you're right, the moment you, you oh, wait a minute, not everybody can, right? Um, it would be awfully strange for laymen to decide on an individual basis who would be, who could be added to the membership of the church while bypassing the shepherds. Christ is appointed to the church. There's a Calvinistic Baptist mission society known as To Every Tribe Mission. Calvinistic Baptist group. Done some good things. They're not confessional Baptists. They're New Covenant theology. They certainly rejoice. They have a heart for the gospel, and, and the Lord has used them to do some good things. They put out a, a magazine, though, called Ekbalo. It's a Greek word. But it contains articles on missions and from missionaries and all that, and you know, can have some edifying stuff. But several years ago, they had one issue that really, I wish I'd kept it, um, to, to, just to, for documentation. But this missionary in the field was talking about the two first uh, converts he had in the, in the people group he was trying to reach. And he took them to their baptism, and he baptized the first man, brought him up, and while he's still dripping wet, he says, now you baptize the other man. And has this newly converted, baptized man baptize the other man. And he says it was really awkward for the man, but he needed to learn to do this right now. you realize how hard it's going to be for that culture to get over that in the future years? Then just go out and baptize, baptize someone who says they know Jesus and that kind of thing without any connection to the church. That's setting up baptism as parachurch. That's a problem. Um, I couldn't believe my eyes when I read it. I did a double take of it. No, he didn't just say what he just said. No, because it's a church ordinance, it's important that it's guarded by the officers of the church. The, our confession of faith recognizes this. Chapter 28, paragraphs 1 and 2. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. Second paragraph, these holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and therefore thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. Fourth thing, church officers have the God-given authority to include or exclude professing Christians to the ordinances. When the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his household, they weren't circumcised. And the Holy Spirit fell on, on them before Peter had even gotten to his application of a sermon, right? And you remember the question that was asked that Peter and his traveling companions in Acts 10, 47, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? It's very evident they've received the Holy Spirit. We can't withhold baptism from them. We have to extend for them Christian fellowship, right? But listen to what he's saying. If there was evidence that the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen upon them, they would have morally obligated to forbid water. Get that? Even so, church officers have a moral obligation to fence the Lord's table and to guard the purity of the local church. Paul was the first one to really do this, at least in recorded New Testament history. Because Remember what he said to the Corinthians? He said, you are being irreverent. They were using real alcohol when they took the Lord's Supper, which there's no sin in. Paul never said, stop using real alcohol and start using grape juice. Mm -hmm. What he said is, control yourself. Right, But he said, what they were doing, they were gorging themselves on the bread. They were getting drunk with the wine. Imagine coming to our church and we're having an agape feast and half the church is sauced. That's what, that's what was happening. And yet, these things were holy symbols of Christ's body and blood and they were profaning them. So this is why some of you are sick and why some of you are dead. I had somebody tell me that the, they thought that the, the uh, tradition of having a uh, graveyard in the back of the church building started because people started abusing the Lord's Supper. 
I don't know. I don't know. But nonetheless, whatever the case, here it was. You've got to fence the table. And Paul tells them, you better examine yourself before you take the Lord's Supper or else you're going to be judged. The truth is, when pastors carefully fence the table, they're not only ministering to souls, they may be protecting your life. So, I speak from painful experience when I say people don't like it when you fence baptism in the Lord's Supper. Especially when it's their children. But, there's nothing new in the sun. You know that John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards lost their jobs because they fenced the Lord's table? They were fired because of it. In Calvin's case, there was a group known as the Libertines. These were professing Christians who believed that they should be free to indulge in sexual morality. And he said, no, you can't come to the Lord's table. And so the officials of Geneva ejected him. He was gone for three years. Three years later, they had a change of heart. They called him back. He had been preaching expositorily, verse by verse, through the book of John. He comes back three years later, gets in the pulpit the first time, doesn't say anything by way of introduction, opens his text right to the very next verse, and keeps on preaching, just like he'd never been gone. Okay, Great story. But nonetheless, there, there were the, this conviction of fencing the table was tested immensely. I'm going to read to you from Stephen Lawson, his book, The Expository Genius of John Calvin. Quote, in an epic account of Philibert Bethelier, which I'm sure I mispronounced that, a prominent liberty was excommunicated because of his known sexual promiscuity. Consequently, he was forbidden from partaking of the Lord's Supper. Through the underhanded influence of the Libertines, the city council overrode the church's decision. So the city government tells you, you can take the Lord's Supper even though your pastor said you can't. And Bertha Lear and his associates came to the church to take the Lord's Supper with swords drawn, ready to fight. You're going to hack your way to the Lord's Supper. Talk about taking on an unworthy manner, right? With bold audacity. Calvin descended from the pulpit, stood in front of the communion table and said, These hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it. But you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. Bertha Lear and the Libertines sheathed their swords and they walked out. Because they couldn't stand up to such courage as that. When I read that story, I was like, I already had respect for John Calvin. It went up like, wait, I appear. He's saying, no. You can kill me first. I'll die before I let you profane the table. The most difficult situations I've ever had to address were people who wanted me to baptize their kids. And I sit down, seeking to graciously interview their child. Parents sitting right there, they hear it. The child can't articulate the gospel at all. And I'm not looking for a dissertation on the extent of the atonement, okay? Um, they're chi- children. I get that. And it's going to be in a childlike way. But I'm talking, they can't say anything. And I'll just say to them, I won't say you're unconverted. I'll just say, you know, you're not ready to be baptized just now. And I've had parents get mad and resign their membership because of it. And it's like, sir, ma'am, I just did a service to your child's soul. Because I care about them. And I'm not going to give them the, the... I want them to have the real thing. I don't want them having this false stuff. I don't want to give them a false assurance. And I didn't do this to be mean. I did this so that they will know the gospel. And when they truly know the gospel, and they've been saved by the gospel, I'll be happy to baptize them. Okay? Um, but, people, that's how they are. <laughs> Last application, then, is baptism and the Lord's Supper are inseparably connected to church membership. 
The keys of the kingdom are interconnected to one another in an inseparable chain. I put this in your notes. You have preaching, first of all, right? Then conversion, baptism, church membership, Lord's Supper, and discipline. Baptism leads to church membership. If the baptized church members, it was them in Acts 2 who continued in the breaking of the bread, right? Members who took the Lord's Supper. I've taught this in various contexts, but let me speak to it again uh, here. The Old Testament circumcision is parallel to baptism. It's not synonymous, but it's parallel in meaning. Circumcision was meant as a symbol of regeneration and conversion. So was baptism. Circumcision was a symbol of the removal of uncleanness through a surgical procedure. Baptism through a washing is a symbol of removal of uncleanness. Circumcision was a sign that you're one of God's people. What is baptism? Same sign. Circumcision brought you into membership in the covenant community of God's visible church, Israel in in that case. What does baptism do? Brings you into membership in the covenant community. And as I'll show you in a moment, circumcision was a necessary prerequisite for the observance of the Passover. You couldn't take the Passover if you weren't circumcised. Baptism is necessary for the observance of the Lord's Supper. Exodus 12. 43 to 44 and 48. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when they have circumcised him, then he may eat it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. So just as an uncircumcised person was barred from the Passover, the Lord's Supper is the covenant meal of the new covenant. So you must be baptized first. There's an order here before you take the Lord's Supper. You see it again in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4. Here Paul sees a parallel between the Israelites coming through the Red Sea and us being baptized by immersion, right? And then the manna he compares from heaven that was given to them. He compares that to the, the Lord's table. Listen to it. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers who were under the cloud all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So there's a parallelism here, right? He's not saying they're identical, but they're parallel to one another. There's a divine order, though. Did they pass through the Red Sea first, or did they eat the bread of heaven first? They were baptized in the Red Sea first, and then they ate. Even so, we're baptized, and then we eat of the Lord's Supper. We first begin, now I'm trying to put this together for you why this matters. We're almost done here, okay? We began our church 20 years ago. I never really thought about these things, never had chewed on them. And so we had our first supper the very first month, that we, the end of the first month we were there. And in those early days, I fenced the table with two things. We would say, you must be a regenerate Christian. You must examine yourself. That's all we said. Okay, we didn't require anybody to be baptized. We didn't require people to be a member of a church. Uh, That would come later. A year or two after we began our church, a family began attending. And the head of the home came up to me, a good man, um, and asked me a question. He says, in other churches we've been in, I haven't ever taken the Lord's Supper because they always required you to be a member in good standing of a local church. I'm not a member of any church. Can I take the Lord's Supper here? And I said, yes. Again, never had thought through it. We didn't hold that family at arm's length by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, we ministered to them um, quite a lot. Three years later, they still weren't members of our church. They had made no movement 
at all to become members of our church. And that's when I began thinking about things because you know what I was realizing? They're not under authority. They're not formally connected to us. Therefore, if they were in sin, we can't excommunicate them. And yet they're enjoying communion, but I can't excommunicate them. Isn't that strange? And what is it that's keeping them from coming under the authority and accountability of the local church? Why are they holding the church at arm's length? In Scripture, in Acts 5, when they dared not join the church, who was it who dared not join the church? The unregenerate. Right? And I'm not saying that these people were unregenerate. But here's what I'm realizing. I actually went back to that man and said, you know, a few years ago you asked me that question, and this is what I told you, but you realize that you haven't made any moves to join our church at all. And you are functionally excommunicating yourself because you've put yourself outside the membership of the church. And so why isn't it, at some point doesn't it become hypocritical to keep taking the Lord's Supper when you've excommunicated yourself? You see, I had to start thinking through that process. And it took five years of thinking, of, of changing where we were, to add just the simple thing, you must be baptized. And then we waited a few more years and we added, you must be a member in good standing. You know why I did that? Because you can't suddenly excommunicate people who took the Lord's Supper last week and then say you can't this week. And so I had to gradually bring these things in. And it's at a place where I think it's helpful now. But I hope you're seeing there's a connection between all these things. And if it is ministers who are supposed to, you know, elder qualified men who've been commissioned by the church who are to administer baptism in the Lord's Supper, who should we send to plant churches? Elder qualified men. Not just any volunteer that shows up and says, hey, I don't want to waste my, wife and my life and I want to be radical. No, they have to be men who are vetted by the church, commissioned by the church, sent out by the church to plant churches. Okay, So, we started off talking about disciple-making movements. What does all this do to that? Blows it right out of the water. You can't obey the Great Commission without preaching and teaching and baptism and the Lord's Supper and church planting. That should be so very obvious. Elder missionaries, capital M missionaries, must be elder qualified men. We're going to talk about lowercase m missionaries. That is, people who go in assistant roles. There is a place for that. There's a place for a team, a missions team. And we'll talk about that next time around. But it begs the question, how does somebody know they're called to be a missionary? And guess what our subject is for next time? Mm -hmm. Calling of a missionary and thinking through all that.